Uh, but today, we're going to continue uh, trying to answer these questions that you've asked. But before we jump in, I want you to turn to your neighbor and ask them, are you ready to learn something? You can turn to the other neighbor you ignored and ask him the same question. But uh, <laughs> there you go. Ho- hopefully, I hope, we, uh, I hope we do learn something. And, uh, you know, I think, I think the best way to learn something is by asking questions. I ask questions all the time, drive people nuts. I actually sat or tried to sit as close to the front in school as possible so I could learn. But, you know, where you see a lot of questions asked is even in the Bible. You see individuals throughout Scripture asking questions. You see David asking God questions throughout the Psalms. God, why this? God, why that? Even Job. God, why is this happening? And then you get to the New Testament, and we see Jesus in the Gospels, and he's asked a lot of questions. But one of the things that Jesus does that I think is really unique is instead of answering a question, he responds to a question with a question, right? Someone asks Jesus a question, he says, well, let me ask you a question and, uh, in order to learn. And that is what we're supposed to do as Christ followers is to be a learner. You know, the word disciple literally means a learner. We are to learn. And so you have asked these questions, and I'm going to attempt to answer some of those questions today. We're going to look at three questions, seemingly different, but there is kind of a thread throughout all of them. So let's go to the first question and see where we land. Here's the first question. What is the unpardonable sin? Anybody? What is the unpardonable sin? I, I don't know about you, but I've grown up in church my whole life and uh, practically born in the pew, and I, I've often wondered about this question. In fact, I did more than wonder. I lived in fear for many years of this question, right? Because I would I'd hear about it, don't commit the unpardonable sin. What is it? Well, um, it's to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but yeah, but what, what does that mean? Well, no one could tell me, right? No one could tell me what that was. So I lived in fear. Like, I thought I was going to hell all the time. Anybody else thought you commit the unpardonable sin growing up? Right? It's like it was a fear tactic, you know? It's, so I was, what is it? What is it? Is it, is it? is it drinking? Is it lying? Is it cheating? Is it stealing? Is it smoking dope? Is it, is it premarital sex? What is the unpardonable sin? And you know, the interesting thing is, and it's not so much interesting as it is sad, is there are people today documented in mental institutions in our own country that have gone crazy because they're afraid they've committed the unpardonable sin. I don't ever think it's God put that in scripture for us to live our lives in fear about committing the unpardonable sin. I would imagine there are some of us in here today who have, like myself, at one point or another throughout their walk with the Lord, have wondered about the unpardonable sin. And what is it? And so I hope today that some of us could walk out of here with a sense of peace and understanding in our hearts towards God and and our relationship with him and trying to answer this question. But to answer it, we first have to go to scripture and find out where is it. This unpardonable sin appears in three places in the Bible, and it's in the Gospels. It's in Luke, it's in Mark, and it's in Matthew. Luke 12, Mark 3, and Matthew 12. We're going to look at Matthew 12, but it's all surrounding the same situation. It's a discussion or an encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, what they're doing is, is they they looking at the miracles that Jesus has done, right? He's setting people free. He's delivering people. All these kind of things. And they say that, you know what? Jesus, that Jesus is not doing these miracles on the basis of him being God. And the power with which he does these miracles is not the power of God. But what it is, it's the power of Satan. They essentially say, look at Jesus in the face and say, hey, look, you are demon-possessed, my friend. 
None of this is because you are who you say you are. There is no God in you. There's no power of God. You're doing this by the power of Satan. That's what's happening. And Jesus' response is what we're going to read, and it's from his response where we get the unpardonable sin. Here's Jesus' response. Let's look at it. Matthew 12, verses 30 through 32. Jesus tells the Pharisees, Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. So I can tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this world or in the world to come. So here, Jesus defines what the unpardonable sin is, and he says it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Okay, great. That's what it is, but what is it? <laughs> right? What, what, what does blasphemy mean? The word blasphemy, if you, too, or you are to blaspheme something, or literally means this, to speak irreverently, sacrilegiously, or profanely against God. That's what it means. Speak irreverently, sacrilegiously, or profanely against God. So what Jesus is saying is when you speak like that against the Holy Spirit, that cannot be forgiven. My question then is, is okay, well, what does that look like? Because here is where no one could really ever give me an answer. Or maybe I just didn't ask the right question. I would ask, to what is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? I, th- I think first what we have to look at is, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? The primary role, function, and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we could spend an entire sermon series on this, but I want to bring you to just two passages of Scripture where Jesus is describing the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's telling, it, it's in a discussion that he has with his disciples. John 15 and John 16. Let's look at John 15 first. Here's Jesus. He said, but I will send you the advocate. Advocate's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. Different name, Holy Spirit. He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. Everybody say testify. Testify. Everybody say me. Me. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit's primary role and function and ministry on the earth is to do one thing, and that is to testify about Jesus. To whom? All of humanity. When he comes, the advocate. The spirit of truth will testify, will proclaim to the world about me, Jesus. He goes on in John chapter 16, same discussion. And when he comes, so the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. So Jesus says, hey, look, he's going to testify about me, and he's also going to convict the world of its sin. Now, you notice it doesn't say sins, right? It says sin, singular, not plural, of its sin. And then Jesus defines it. He says this, the sin of the world is that it refuses to believe in me. The sin of the world is that it refuses to believe in me. The greatest sin in the world and of humanity is its refusal to believe in Jesus. So what are you saying, Josh? Here's what I'm saying. The unpardonable, the unforgivable sin is to not believe in Jesus. Everybody just take a deep breath. 
Because we ask ourselves this question, at least I did. I don't know if I've committed the unpardonable sin. I sinned yesterday. Was that unpardonable or was that forgivable? I questioned God. I didn't know if something in my life was God or was the devil. I I, I don't know. Was it God or was it the food I ate? Oh, did I commit the unpardonable sin? Wondering, can God forgive me? I just kind of want to put this to rest. I think the fact that you even ask the question if you've committed the unpardonable sin is a really good indication that you're okay. Why? Because it says that you're concerned with, with the heart of God. You're concerned with doing something against God. Therefore, you have a belief in God. Because if you don't believe in God, who cares? Right? If you don't believe you have sin, who cares? But if you believe in God, and you're afraid that he won't forgive you, then you obviously believe that he can forgive you, so therefore you believe in him. So if I were to ask you the question today, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And you say, yes. Do you believe that he was on this earth? Yes. Do you believe that he went to the cross and died a death and paid the punishment for sin? Yes. Do you believe that he was buried in a tomb? Yes. Do you believe that he rose three days later? Yes. Do you believe that he was seen by over 500 people? Yes. Do you believe that he went, then went into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father? Yes. Well, guess what? You're good to go. <laughs> Clap and say hallelujah. So the unpardonable sin is to not believe in Jesus. And I just want to tell you, I'm going to share with you some, some scholars, what they say. This is a guy named F.F. F. Bruce. You know all smart people just put initials, right? They don't even have a first name, right? They're just you know, G.K. Chesterton, all these smart people. Look at this. The deliberate refusal of the grace of God is the one sin which by its very nature is irremediable, which means unforgivable. Scholar, to refuse the grace of God can't be forgiven. Here's another guy, pastor, scholar, David Guzik. The unpardonable sin is a settled disposition of life that rejects the testimony of the Holy Spirit regarding Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject forgiveness. Jesus makes the statement, hey, look, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. So if you don't go through Jesus, there's no forgiveness. And you can only believe in Jesus because the Holy Spirit testified to you about him. So it's a settled disposition of life, a belief system that rejects him. So I would venture to say, a majority of us, if not all of us in this room, are okay. And you can walk out of here knowing that, wow, I believe those questions you asked me. Therefore, you're good to go. No need to live in fear. God didn't save you by his grace through Jesus for you to walk around wondering not if he's going to forgive you. He spoke pretty clear on the cross. If you accept that, you're good to go. I don't know about you, but if someone had told me that early on in life, woo, I would have had less heartburn. Right? Jesus saves. Okay, here's the second question. What else are we going to answer? What is predestination? That's a great question. Next. No. Um, (laughs) You can leave it up. What is predestination? I put a little tag. Does God choose me or do I choose him? Great question. Some of you in here today, you're like, yeah, what is predestination? I don't even use that word, predestination. Some of you have an idea of what that is. Uh, Some of you obviously wanted more information because you asked the question. Really, the question was phrased in one way. One of the questions was, you know, Pastor Josh, what are your thoughts on predestination? And so what I want to do is just take an opportunity to talk a little bit about it. 
and wanted to say that, you know, predestination, we'll read a technical definition here in a moment and then, and then break it down. It, it's a belief system. It's a doctrine which is trying to describe, within theology, describe who God is and how he functions. And it's really, it's part of a larger belief system known as Calvinism. Anybody f- familiar with Calvinism? Okay. Calvinism is a, is a doctrine, a belief system within the church today that is trying to describe who God is, how he functions, and, and all those things. We don't have the time uh, to really dig into that. Predestination, really what the question is, is in reference to today, isn't so much about how the universe functions as it is about people. That's really where the question comes down to. And that's what I want to try to answer today is predestination in, re- in reference to the salvation of an individual. Now here's the technical definition of predestination. It is predestination in theology is the doctrine that all events have been willed by God, usually with reference to the eventual fate of the individual soul. The last half of that is what we're going to talk about. Last week, we talked about this a little bit. The question, why do bad things happen? Why does God allow them? Predestination Calvinism, and, and, and I would agree with this part too, is, is that it is a, God is sovereign over everything, right? God created everything. God set everything into motion. Now last week the question was, why, does, why do bad things happen? And we said that, that God does allow bad things to happen, but he doesn't cause those bad things to happen, but he does allow them. And I believe God is sovereign over everything. In, in eternity, his plan will be accomplished. The question that, that gets folded into this now is, the, is, is about a person and their salvation. And the question is, does God choose those who go to heaven and those who don't? Does God alone make that decision? Or, or do we choose God? Fundamental question. Some of you may be like, what's it matter? Some of you were like, definitely, I want to know. And predestination says this. Predestination says that God chooses who's in and who's out. And I'm making it incredibly simple. God chose ahead of time who would be saved and who would not. And he did that from the beginning of the world. As he looked forward, he made that decision ahead of time. The other side of the aisle does not agree with that. Both love God. Both are loving Jesus and and God-fearing people, but these are the divide. I want to show you some scripture of where this this comes from, because the question that you could ask is, well, then how would someone come to this understanding and this, this belief system that God chooses who is in and who is out? It's scriptural. Is there scriptural foundation for it? And the answer is yes. I want to show you a scripture. We can go through a ton of scripture, but I want to show you a scripture that is used uh, within this viewpoint. A lot of it. It's Romans uh, 8, 28 through 30. This is Paul writing. He said, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Next verse. For God knew. Everybody say knew. His people in advance and he chose. Everybody say chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. So right off the bat here, you see this word knew. It said, and God knew his people. Now, that word 
when a person who believes in predestination or not, when they see that word, what that word is, is telling us is that God is omniscient. Anybody ever heard of that word, omniscient? It just literally means he knows everything. Okay? He's omniscient. That God has the ability to see ahead. He has foresight. He has foreknowledge that when God created the world, he looked ahead. God is not bound by time or space. We talked about that last week. He's eternal. Always been, always will be, no beginning and no end. He's eternal. So God is omniscient. When he looked ahead, he chose. He made a decision at the beginning, those who he would save. And he called them his chosen. Now this isn't the only scripture. There are many scriptures in the Bible that speak to this idea. Paul, the same writer in some of his other books, when he refers to the Christians, refers to believers, he says, the elect, the chosen, the called, the set apart ones. Even Peter, you read Peter's letter, he refers to believers as the elect. So, on one hand, yes, there is scriptural foundation to believe that God does choose from the beginning, who is in and who is not. A little bit difficult to maybe settle in, isn't it? Or maybe not. Maybe that's what you believe. The, the other side of the aisle, other side of the aisle, this is what we call the free will camp, or if you want to get really technical, Arminians, they believe that God gave mankind a free will to choose. They'll go back to the same verse same word, new, and we'll say, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is omniscient. And yes, God could see ahead of time. But just because God is omniscient, and just because God could foresee what would happen, it doesn't mean that God made the decision. It simply means that God looked into the future and saw who would choose him. But he didn't direct their choice. They'll say, no, you see, the, the sacrifice of Jesus was for everyone, for the entire world, for whoever would believe. That's what the other side of the aisle says. Now, if we jump back to the predestinarian view, what they say is they have this concept of limited atonement. Anybody ever heard of limited atonement? What limited atonement essentially says is that when Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice, his forgiveness was limited to the ones that God chose ahead of time. God made the decision, therefore Jesus' sacrifice was limited to those whom God chose. So they believe. Other side of the aisle. You guys confused on which side of the aisle we're on? <laughs> Other side of the aisle says no. God's sacrifice was not limited. And that God gave people a choice. And here's what scriptures they'll use to say their point of view that God chose all of humanity in Jesus. Here's one. Here's a couple of them. Second Peter verses, chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting everybody to say anyone, anyone. to perish, but say everyone, everyone to come to repentance. So say, there you go. God says that he doesn't want anyone to die and go to hell. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Doesn't mean that everyone will, okay? But that his desire is that everyone would. Then we go to, uh, I think it's 1 John. Yeah, 1 John 2, verse 2. Talking about Jesus. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. Now, John is writing this. Our, he's writing to the church. It's our sins, we believe. But, but, hey, not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So say, look. 
Now, see, God's heart is, is that everyone would be, not everyone will be, but they would be, and the sins of, of, of the entire world were paid for in Jesus. It wasn't limited to those who, would, who God chose. They even go back to John 3.16, 3.16, for God so loved the world that whosoever would believe, right? So, at this point, you may be thinking, well, Josh, we're right back where we started. You didn't answer the question. You didn't tell us which one it is. And I didn't say this from the beginning, but there is no way we're going to settle this debate today. This debate has been going on for centuries. There are people who are way smarter than me that have names like F.F. Bruce, you know, that don't even have a first name, that have been debating this throughout history, trying to find what the answer is. We're not going to settle it, and I'm not going to try. I'm not that smart, nor do I think God really, really explicitly says one way or the other. Here's what it does for me. It makes salvation seem like such a mystery, doesn't it? Makes it seem like we're, we're trying to grasp it and understand it and figure it out. And on one hand, you can say, well, that's frustrating. I just want God to tell me. And I could get there. But on the other hand, it just, I think it speaks to the sufficiency and the, how amazing and big God is. Because we don't really know. I can't tell you, yep, it's this way, and yep, it's this way. I know what I believe, but if you're asking me to go on record and stand before a court of law and say emphatically yes, I can't deny that there are scriptures in the Bible that speak to it. Nor can I deny that there are scriptures in the Bible that speak to the other side of it. And I want to leave us today on this question with something that Paul said. Paul himself, who, who wrote what we read in Romans, and refers to people as the elect. Here's what he said when it comes to salvation. Say this. I'm going to read it to you from the message because I love the way it's phrased. He said, saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. Because if we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No. We neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better been doing. What's Paul saying? Hey, it is by grace that you have been saved, not of works lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. So did God choose us or did we choose him? I don't know, but I know he's the one that saves. Amen? I know he's the one that made the decision to give up his only son, Jesus, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, to save humanity. And I know that my response isn't trying to figure that out, but my response is, I just got to preach the message. Because here's what God never asked you and I to do, figure out people's eternity. God never once asked us to walk out on the playground and go, one, two, one, two, one, two. You're in, you're out. Two's over there, one's over here. That's not our responsibility. I don't even think God really functions that way. He didn't ask us to. So I'm just going to give up the responsibility of trying to figure out who's in and who's out. He didn't leave that to me. But he did leave to me and to you the responsibility to communicate the gospel. He did leave you and me to respond to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is to testify about Jesus. Here's all I know. All I know is I believe in Jesus. And I know that I didn't get there on my own. 
I know that I didn't get there because I had a logical conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I know that at some point the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and illuminated something for me and faith erupted in me and all I knew was that I needed Jesus. Did God choose me or did I choose him? I don't know. All I know is I got Jesus. How that works? Is it okay to study it? Sure, 100%. If you're not satisfied today, that's cool. Go study your little heart out. Because you know what's going to happen? You're just going to stand more in awe of who God is. But I just don't want this issue to become a primary issue when it's a secondary issue. The primary issue, God saves. And he saves not because we're good. He saves because he's good. And he sent us Jesus who never committed any sin but willfully crawled upon that cross and paid for the sins of humanity. And we do Trust him enough to believe that he saves us. That's where I'm at on the issue. So what is predestination? Not fully sure on what side of the aisle, but I am sure what, I'm not sure what the process looks like, but I do know who saves. As you walk out of your day, maybe you can be a little more focused on who rather than what. Study the what, but never study the what at the expense of the who. And that's him. Okay. Here's the final question that we're going to try to answer today. Are we living in the end times? It's a great question. Somebody, a couple people in first service just yelled out their answer. They didn't even wait. They're like, yes. You know, I've I grown up in church like I told you, and uh, I've grown up in a, in, a, in a denomination, kind of Pentecostal kind of side of things that um, I heard, I, Jesus has been coming back since I was born. And, I, and I'm, I'm not saying that disrespectfully, but I mean, that's what, if there's one message I heard growing up, Jesus is coming back. When? Like tomorrow. He is coming back, right? He is coming back. It's called Pentecostal urgency. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king, right? I mean, we sang the song, he is coming back. And this is a question that's been asked for even since Jesus was on this earth. You remember his disciples came to him. Hey, Jesus. They didn't ask him necessarily, are we? But they said, how are we going to know? How are we going to know when the end is near? Now, we can try to answer this question in a variety of ways. We can look at prophecy. There are, there are books in the Bible called prophetic books. Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation. I'm just going to admit to you, I'm not, I'm not a, an expert on prophecy. I've not studied it out. But I am going to share with you, so I'm not going to go there because I'll just confuse myself in the process. But I am going to share with you today something that Jesus said that kind of just brings some resolution to this issue for me. It brings resolution and it brings focus for me. Jesus' disciples ask him this question. Hey, how are we going to know? And we all want to know, right? Are we living in the end days? Well, in, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples, and they come to him, and they say, how are we going to know if we're living in the end times? And here's Jesus' response to them. About 10 verses, so stay with me. So Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming that I'm the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nations will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all this is only the first of the birth pains which with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers, and many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. 
But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about it, the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. So Jesus goes through and he gives us a list, right? Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, uh, nations are going to be going against nation, kingdom against kingdom, moral decay. Uh, people are going to like, they're going to come against you because they believe, because you believe in me. You're going to be persecuted. Some are going to be killed. Many are going to fall away from me, false teachers. But the message of the gospel is going to be preached everywhere. Give us a list. And so if you were to take that list, pull it out of scripture, put it on a wall, and start checking the boxes, right? We could almost check all of them, couldn't we? Wars? Yeah. Earthquakes? Oklahoma a couple weeks ago, right? Haiti, 2010. Japan, nuclear, nuclear reactor. Earthquakes? Yeah. Famines? Sure. Have you seen Africa? Some of the horn of Africa where the famines have been horrible. What about kingdom against kingdom? Yeah, nation against nation. You better believe it. Middle East, Islamic terrorism. How about moral decay? They can say, oh yeah, moral decay. How about this though? The gospel is being preached everywhere. That's exciting, isn't it? I mean, we should be super excited about that. The gospel is being all over the world because of technology being preached to places like you wouldn't believe. The church is growing leaps and bounds outside of this country. It is amazing what God is doing with the gospel. But here's the thing. We, we can look at these signs. We can check the boxes, but I guarantee you throughout the centuries we could check the same boxes, right? You, you just become a student of history and you read since Jesus resurrected into heaven, there have been wars, there have been earthquakes, there have been famines. Sin has always been there, right? Sin has always been increasing. There's been moral decay. There's been nation against nation. There's been, the gospel's been spreading and blowing up since Jesus left. I mean, just expanded. Look, it started uh, there in a little in the Middle East. Look where it is today. Every corner of the earth, the gospel has spread. I'm saying all that to say, those signs are there. But it doesn't really claim, paint a super clear picture. We can look at the times, and we can try to decipher them for ourselves and say, yes, we are. And I, and, and I want to tell you, I don't know. And here's why I don't know. I'm going to tell you because here's what Jesus said. Here's how Jesus concludes his discussion with the disciples. And for me, it's final. For me, it's just resolution. However, no one knows. Everybody say, no one knows. The day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son himself, only the Father knows. Get this. Nobody knows. Angels don't know. Jesus don't know. Therefore, we don't know. <laughs> and Jesus, and God is not going to tell me or tell you before he tells Jesus. God is not going to tell us before he tells heaven. We don't know. Jesus don't know. The angels don't know. What makes us think we're going to look at a list in the Bible or look at these prophetic events or that look at the sky and try to decipher the color of this moon and figure out when he's coming back when he clearly told us we don't know? For me, that's enough. You want to study prophecy? Go for it. Is it wrong? Not at all. But we're not going to know. You are never going to know. One dude wrote a book in 1988. Remember it? 88 reasons why Jesus come back in 88. He wrote another book in 1989. 89 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1989. He made a lot of money. But we don't know. I think it's okay to want to know. But let's just come to the fact that we don't know. And God isn't going to tell us. I think the problem is this. When we live with a perspective of trying to figure it out, 
we lose the perspective of what God asked us to do. I've heard a prayer growing up, and the prayer's been, Oh, Lord, the world's getting worse. Please come back. God, rescue your world. Is it a bad prayer? No, but I think it's a prayer that, that steps away from responsibility. It's a prayer that says, God, this world is just getting worse, and you ain't doing nothing about it. you got to come back, get me out of here, as if to say we don't have a place in the world and we don't have a responsibility in the world. Because I'm going to tell you what, each and every one of us are here right now because God wants us to be here. We are not in the wrong decade. We are not in the wrong century. We are not wrong anything. God sovereignly put us here. And he gave us a mission. And so I just want to ask you, and this may come across harsh, and I know this is not as conversational as we have been, but could you just stop trying to figure it out? Please, stop. Why? Because it's distracting the church from being the church. Because if you want to ask what did God tell us to do, it's what Jesus said in Matthew 28. After he resurrected, after this discussion, he stands up before his followers on a mountain. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to take this message, the message of my life, the message that sets people free, the message that can reach into the heart of a nation and change people, the message that reaches in where genocide exists and it can destroy racism and genocide and human trafficking and addiction. I want you to take this message to the end of the earth and I want you to tell people, hey, we don't know when it's going to end, but we do know the one who can save you and set you free. He did give us that. That should be some clapping on that. And I think it's more important now than ever to have that settled inside of your heart because here in a month and a half, we're going to walk in a voting booth and make a pretty important decision. Right, And I think, unfortunately, what we've done is some of us believe that, regard, that if this individual gets in heaven, oh, definitely we're in the end times. Oh, geez, yeah, that person gets in, Jesus is coming back. Right? <laughs> Whoever that person is for you, that's what some people are saying. Well, if this person gets in heaven, then, then, then this. I'm just going to go on record. I don't think whoever the president of America is is going to change God's plan. The president of the United States of America cannot affect the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot tie God's plan and all of scripture on who is taking the office of our country. God establishes authority anyway. That's what it says in Romans. So may our hope not be in what we see in our country and who's in office, but may our hope be who's inside of us and Jesus. And may we stop trying to figure out when, how, where, and why he hasn't come back and just say, you know what, God, what do you want me to do? I live in a fallen, broken world. It's, it's been fallen and broken since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. Moral decay, always going to be there. Ain't getting rid of sin. Not getting rid of bad stuff. But God chose us to be his conduits. God chose us to be the ones to speak the message, live the message, and be the message. I think it's more important now than ever. I would say this. I would say, and I know I'm probably stepping on toes, get off Facebook and promoting everything that supports your viewpoint and start talking to people about Jesus. No matter what you share, is it going to save somebody's life? I, 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 if, if I were to do a survey, and I probably just need to shut up, but if I were to do a survey, this is just 
burning in me. If I were to do a survey and just look at Christianity today and, I, and just hear what people are saying, Christians are speaking, and just in our country, they're speaking death and destruction and more of that, and it's all situated around our political atmosphere when we've got the most powerful, life-giving, hope-filled message on the face of the earth. We're not spreading that message. We're spending our time on Facebook and complaining about the problems when we're the solution to the problems. Come on. So my encouragement, November 8th, go vote. Vote however the Lord leads you to vote. But don't leave your Christianity in that booth. Don't tie your hope to what you circled on a piece of paper. Tie your hope to what you read about, to the Holy Spirit coming back full circle, whose mission and purpose in your life is to testify of Jesus. That we can look out in the world today and see that Jesus is active. Like I was making the point, the gospel is being preached. The church is growing around the world. It may be shrinking in America, but it's growing around the world. Right? And I believe that it can grow in America again. I believe that because it's a message that people need to hear. So I don't know if we're in the end times. But here's what I do know. We're all in our end. We're all going to die here soon. James said, our life is but a vapor. David said, it's but the width of my hand. So we're in the end of our days. Question is, what are we going to do with it? Maybe that's a better question. Not are we in the end of the world, but we're in the end of our days. And what, how are we going to live our lives? In fear and worry or with hope and excitement that God is the God of the future and God has a plan and God is still seated on the throne and Jesus is still on the right hand of the Father and he's got stuff for us to do and he's going to provide in the direction that carries out his message and his mission on the earth. I don't know about you and I may be one of the only ones, but I'm just excited. I'm, t- I'm excited about the future. I believe God's got big stuff in store. I, I believe that this is going to be the- our greatest hour. And I could be foolish, and I could be one of those guys that you're like, you're just licking lollipops and drinking fruity drinks. But that's what you may think. But I just believe that God is good. I'm not saying things aren't going to be difficult, but I just, I'm excited. I've got hope. I want you to know that. I'm excited. Anybody else? Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to fake it. How to fake it? We need to we need to wrap this thing up. My hope in this whole thing today was this: was that regardless of these questions, is that we could walk out of here with just our focus on Jesus, and ask the Holy Spirit just to help us with everything going on, because I'm not immune to what's going on. With everything going, Holy Spirit. May you do your work in me, and that's to focus me on Jesus. In the midst of my family situations, in the midst of my work, in the midst of this climate that we're in and everything going on, help me to see the person of Jesus. Because I just really believe the more I see Jesus, the more I know the direction that I'm headed, and the more I know what I am to do. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let me pray over you. I just got off my soapbox, metaphorically. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person that's here today. Lord, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. We thank you 
that you've given us, Jesus. We thank you, Father, that truly we believe that the best is yet to come and the best is tied to you and your plan and your purpose for our church and for our lives. And Holy Spirit, I ask you just to help us to see Jesus. Point us to the person of Jesus, as I said, in every area and facet of our lives. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you've done. Lord, we struggle in some areas. We struggle to understand. We struggle to to see clearly. And I pray for that, just that we would have wisdom, Lord, and that you would give us insight into the issues and problems that we face. But Lord, as we walk out of here today and we we face our week, Lord, may you provide every single one of our needs according to your riches and glory, which are in Christ Jesus. Give us the courage and the strength, Lord, that we need this week. Give us the energy and the focus. Lord, may you make your face to shine upon us. May you shower us with your mercy and your grace. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.